podcast with James and Jane. Hi, this is James. Just before we start, I wanted to remind you that you can read our articles, explore more podcasts, and learn about our online personal and management development programs and workshops by visiting our website, www.worldofwork.io. All right, on to the podcast. Hello, this is James. And this is Jane. And here we are again with another episode of the World of Work podcast. I am so excited about this one. I'm proper excited. Why is that? What are we talking about today? So uh, we are talking to uh, a gentleman who works for an organization who is trying to help other organizations recruit in a less biased way. In a less biased way? Yeah. What's that going to lead to? Increased diversity and inclusion in line with our series on those subjects? Well, it might do. And it also might just you know, improve hiring generally as a process. Yeah, and it might just make the world a better place too. Well, we'll get to that, uh, hopefully. Hopefully. But yeah, no, I'm just excited because I think it's a really uh, interesting subject. And I think uh, one of the themes that we always talk about is how rushed everybody is to do their job. And I feel like quite often recruitment is something that gets time pressured. Yeah, I, I think it absolutely is. And and one of the things I love about this episode is it, it's um, quite sort of contemporary. It brings in... Uh, subject I'm interested in so it brings in bits around technology it brings in um, bits around sort of behavioral science and it looks at some of the uh, existing you know challenges we face with the recruitment process and how we can overcome those and, and how not just larger organizations can overcome them but how people in all organizations can can try and create a better set of recruiting outcomes yeah and I don't I don't always say this but with this episode I really feel like everybody in the world of work can take something from it yeah in the sense that these are issues that face us all yeah, yeah, it's more than just in the And we should know about them, yeah. right? We should be aware of our own human fallibilities. Oh, 100%. That should be like the strap line for our program. It should almost. be a strap line for life. We're all <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. human and human... Yeah. Lit- I mean, the irony is when someone says, I'm only human, they literally mean fallible, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yet we don't think that like anyway. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, should we have a little check-in before we get into it? Yeah, how are you? Uh, listen, I've got a snuffles. I'm oh, Mr. Snuffles today. You are Mr. Snuffles So, yeah, today. so I'm feeling a little bit sorry for myself, but generally pretty happy. Um, but it's the first time I've been ill in a long time, so I can't complain. But obviously, the, the biggest thing on my mind at the minute is the snuffles. I know. We were, I, was, I was saying earlier, snuffles is that hilarious thing where you shouldn't be allowed to do anything else because really all you're doing every five minutes is thinking, do I feel better or worse than yeah, I did yeah, five yeah, yeah. minutes I'm measuring ago? It. I'm just... Am I okay now? Am I worse? Should I put another jumper on? Yeah, I'm loading up with, uh, oh, with medication and caffeine and that's getting me through the day. Well, in which case, then I'm impressed that you're recording today. Mm, that's good. What about you? How are you getting on? I am... Uh, so one of the reasons I'm super excited about this episode is because uh, I studied a bit of this subject as part of my course last term. Um, and I am now knee deep into year two. Yeah. And Can't loving believe. it. And yeah. I love it. It's, I just, I'm such a geek. I'm, I'm mad for the research at the moment. Mad for it. I find it quite hard work reading it. But once I've got through it and I understand it and I can go back and try and interpret it. Yeah. Loving it. Okay. Happy. Happy days. All right. Well, why don't we jump into the episode and have a chat with Andy Babbage from Applied. Um, all about technology, recruitment, bias and how to make the world a yeah. little bit more See you all on the flip side. So here we are, we're getting into the conversation. Today we're speaking to um, Andy Babbage from Applied and we're carrying on with our series on inclusion and diversity. And today's focus is really about sort of bias and recruitment and how we can improve the recruitment process so that we can strip out some of the biases, some of the flaws in there and create more um, diverse and, and more inclusive uh, working populations in our organization. Um, just to kick things off, Andy, would you mind saying hi and introducing yourself to the audience? Hi, James, and, and hi, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for having me on this podcast. Um, as you said, I'm, I'm, the, I'm one of the directors at Applied, and we're trying to use behavioral science to remove bias from recruitment um, to improve um, hiring outcomes. Uh, my personal background is fairly eclectic. Um, I was recruited through RM Platform, and as a result, okay. most, people, yeah, most people here have quite interesting backgrounds. So I was originally an, an engineer uh, okay. before I moved into more of the commercial side of the business, started to get more and more interested in diversity, particularly around gender, um, and then finally found myself uh, at Applied. Um, essentially, my job is, is trying to translate the benefits and messages of Applied into a business context um, so that um, organizations are interest, see the benefits of using us. Um, so yeah, really looking forward to, to talking it through with you today. 
Yeah, that sounds great. Um, and, and that's exactly what we want to hear about today is, is how these processes work and, and how it creates better outcomes for businesses and organizations. I guess before we get into that, uh, just a little bit more generally, as you know, we're speaking about inclusion and diversity throughout this entire uh, series that we're looking at. What's your take on, on why those areas are important? I mean, you, you mentioned you've had a bit of an interest in it. What's your sort of general take on diversity and inclusion? I, I, think, it's, I think it's a moral and business imperative. Um, on the business side, I think the research is, is continuing to grow that um, diverse teams are better at innovation, you know, they're better at problem solving, better at breaking down groupthink. Um, and as an organization, you can better represent and serve uh, the, the market if you represent them internally. Um, but I also think that newer generations of, of workers or the workforce are starting to demand it as just the way a workforce should be. Um, so I think if if your organization is not thinking about this, then it's you're potentially going to be left behind because um, I truly think it's going to start making up a big part of companies' um, competitive advantage. Yeah. It's so funny you should say, uh, well, it's not funny, but it's so uh, interesting that you should say uh, the piece about moral imperative because I think that uh, previously... Maybe we haven't been, and I speak as someone in, you know, in the sector, we haven't been brave enough with organizations to make that statement that it's not yeah. just about the business case. And I think we've in, uh, elsewhere in the series, we talked to someone about neurodiversity and we talk about the next generation mm -hmm. being demanding more of, of the organizations that, and, and being more confident in what they can ask and what they expect to see in their organizations, which I think it feels really exciting time. Yeah, I think it, it shouldn't have to rely on a business case because mm -hmm. um, I think it's the, it's the right thing to do. Um, but in terms of us, in terms of how we think about the good that we do in terms of social impact, we believe it's tied to the scale uh, of people using tools like ours. Mm -hmm. And the way to get there is to make sure it is commercially viable um, and can stand on its own, own feet. Yeah. At least that's our, our philosophy. That's our approach to it. Yeah, and, and you know, the next series that we're going to be doing that we're, <laughs> as ever, starting to, starting to work on already is, is all about responsible business and about the role of business in shaping a, a better uh, set of outcomes for society. And, and I think to, to achieve those better outcomes, businesses really do need to be commercially viable. So I think that makes sense. And it's good to hear you, hear you say that you're working towards creating better outcomes for individuals and organizations while maintaining a, a, you know, a, a profitable base on that as well. Yeah, I think it's I think it's hugely important that we hear from organizations that are doing things differently and structuring their purpose differently, because I think I think there's a big difference, like you've alluded to, of being commercially viable and successful in order to achieve other social purposes and being commercially and being socially uh, forward thinking to be more commercially successful. Um, and it sounds very much like the more and more we're talking to organizations that are the former, right? Yeah, that yeah. Are, are trying to be really successful and commercially strong such that they can create meaningful change. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about, um, about the, the area that you focused in. So, so a lot of your work at Applied is about the recruitment process. Yes. Um, and a lot of it's about, I guess, sort of bringing people in. Um, what what do you think some of the flaws are? I mean, how, how do you see the regular recruitment process work? I guess, what's the need out there? What's wrong at the minute with the way that people do things? Yeah, um, where, where, where do I start? Um, <laughs> well, We've got time, for, don't worry. Oh, I like time. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, let me say, I think recruitment is a really hard job. Um, I think, I think yeah. if you're part of a small company, you're usually doing it um, in addition to your day job and usually Googling how to do it properly um, and just yeah. trying to learn on the fly how to do it. Um, and then if you're part of a larger talent acquisition team, you're usually overworked, underappreciated, and um, have to deal with pushy hiring managers. So I think it's actually a really tough job. Um, and I think, unfortunately, that's, that's led to a lot of the job having a focus on speed and time to hire and productivity yeah. and efficiency of the process, which is fine, which is definitely something that's important. Um, what, what, what we've seen is as you start to focus more on speed, you tend to sacrifice other things, potentially like quality of hire and diversity being one of those things. Um, mm -hmm. 
So in terms of the actual process itself, you know, we've been 98% of processes use like a CV and cover letter sift. Um, we've been mm -hmm. using CVs for, for like a hundred years. Um, uh, as we know, there's lots of research that shows the types of information we get in CVs is it causes your biases to come out and, and essentially adds noise to your decision-making process. Um, so um, recruitment is a complex decision uh, with multiple variables. Um, so the last thing you want is your biases ruling um, and causing you to make uh, decisions based on your gut. Uh, but sadly, I think that's where the majority of recruitment is um, at the moment. So I think there's lots, lots of areas for improvement. Um, can I just uh, ask you to clarify a few things? We've done some episodes looking at things like biases before yeah. and things like that, but would, would you be able to just give us your definition of what a bias is and maybe talk about some of the things within CVs at that starting point of a recruitment process that, that you think uh, draw out biases or lead people to fall down their sort of uh, preconceptions? Absolutely. Um, so a bias, or rather the, the ones we address are the unconscious biases, and they are a mental shortcut or a heuristic uh, that your brain uses to make sense of all the information it's getting. Um, so the ones that you typically get, there's lots you get in recruitment, uh, five big ones. So affinity bias, the idea that we uh, unconsciously prefer people who sound um, and look like us, um, so we'll be more favorable on their applications. Uh, stereotype bias, if we're lacking uh, information about someone, we'll fill it in with a stereotype, which are grossly inaccurate. Um, halo effects, if we, you know, if someone's gone to a great university, we might um, look positively on the rest of their, or a, a less, rest of their CV. Uh, confirmation bias, if someone starts off an application really well, we're more likely to say this person's great all the way through because we don't like being, uh, we don't like disagreeing with ourselves. Yeah, um, we, we, yeah. <laughs> and finally, groupthink. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, if your boss says this person is the, is the best person for the job, you're more likely to agree. Um, no matter what you really think. Um, and all of those come out in a CV. So um, I was just looking at the research yesterday. So since 2006, there's been over 90 correspondence studies where essentially researchers send out two, uh, two, two CVs, um, sets of CVs, where they change a simple, um, simple uh, part of it, like someone's name or a background characteristic. And they send it out to thousands mm -hmm. of jobs and they record the rate of interview callback. Um, so 90 studies across 27 different countries, 79% of those show um, a distinct disadvantage to the minority group that's being tested for. Um, and what that means right now in the UK is if you have a minority ethnic sounding name on your CV, you have to send 60% more CVs um, than a white British sounding name. Um, and that's the equivalent of having an extra eight years of experience. That's phenomenal. I mean, that's a huge, huge disparity. Yeah. I think the, the disparity is huge, but also the sheer volume of evidence to show that this is a real yeah. thing is, is astounding. Mm -hmm. Absolutely astounding. Mm -hmm. So there, there you're talking about, you know, sort of ethnicity coming across. Are, are there other diversity traits that, that you see um, in the data? Uh, signaling disparity as well? Absolutely. So of those 90 studies, they, they did them across um, uh, religion, uh, ethnicity, age, uh, sort of uh, male-female, um, but also um, women with children, um, LGBT indicators. Um, and what they do is they essentially add or remove different parts of the CV um, and measure the differential in interview callback rates. Um, mm -hmm. it's, uh, th there's, there's lists you can Google uh, online, which are just go through all of the studies. Um, and it's pretty, uh, depressing and scary reading in my opinion. Yeah. It's funny. Um, I, I only really got interested in this area about four months ago because it came across my study books and, um, our lecturer introduced us to the, uh, some of the research that you're talking about. And there was a genuine stunned silence during the lecture of just how, bigger both both the magnitude yeah. of the effect and the breadth of the research across sector across country across um uh characteristic etc and it was astonishing and then there's a really interesting 
we met a, a postdoc student who's studying class at yeah. the moment um, because obviously it's not protected characteristics. There's a lot less uh, research around it. And uh, they were using, they did some similar work around signifiers on CVs that would, you know, like not having go to, gone to university in the, the year after you'd gone to school, maybe sure. five years later oh, okay. and things like that. And they just said it's, I mean, the conversations are just, people reveal themselves even in the qualitative conversations, yeah. just because they are so unaware, they are so blissfully unaware of the associations they're making in their head, the shortcuts. It's a really great, great uh, explanation. So thank you for that. Because it, they literally reveal the shortcuts they are making when they start to talk through what they're thinking when they read it. Absolutely. And I think, I think it's important to note that we're all guilty of it. Um, and uh, biases aren't, aren't always bad. Uh, they just are. Um, but the important thing to know is it's great to be aware of your biases, but it's really hard to turn them off. You know, once you've opened Pandora's yeah. box, um, it's difficult to tell yourself, no, ignore that piece of information it's not going to help me because it's already happened so it's really interesting uh, that you talk about that andy because i know um that in the us for example they have uh specific laws around which tests can and can't be used based on uh the level to which a uh, minority group's answers might deviate so if mm -hmm. it's, it's considered to be a discriminatory process yeah. if there's a uh, a group that performs particularly poorly yeah or out of the liar and that we don't really have that in the UK do we we don't have that kind of measure no no we don't we don't at all and um just to talk a little bit more about assessment choosing assessments people you're right people don't consider the impact it could have on uh different minority groups but also people aren't really talking about how predictive assessments are um so each assessment can there's been over 100 years of research into how effective different types of assessments are um, and the conversation isn't really uh, about picking the most predictive one. It's just picking the same one that you've used before. Um, and they're kind of, um, kind of they're interlinked um, because the most predictive forms of assessment are often the ones which have the least bias. Um, so if everyone's using a CV, which has things like years of experience, uh, years of education on it, which are some of the least mm -hmm. predictive uh, indicators of performance on the job as their first set, first round first uh, filter in the process oh, stiff. then uh, and it's biased you're really getting a pretty poor um first round filter in 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 my opinion yeah wow what um so you what what are the popular uh methods of recruitment then yeah. what are the what is it that you find most consistently that isn't isn't either predictive and is potentially not helpful in terms of a diversity point of yeah. view, but that people are still using. Yes, absolutely. So, um, the, so a hundred years of research, uh, the most famous meta study is by Schmidt, Schmidt Hunter, uh, done in 97 and repeated in 2016. And it essentially ranks the different methods, uh, assessment methods and how their predictive validity, um, the ones at the bottom are years of experience, years of education and references. Uh, then you move up to things like unstructured interviews. Um, so an unstructured interview is um, basically like a bit of a chat where you get to know the person. Uh, maybe you grab a beer, um, you get to know them. Uh, and that is very gut-driven. Um, you're, you're prone to affinity bias and things like that. You're not really learning much about the candidate in terms of how, how you do the job. And you're prone to kind of go down these channels where it leads to what you have in common and things like that. So those are the ones kind of on the bottom. Um, and then as you move up uh, the different assessments, the more structured they get and the closer they get to the actual job is the, is the more predictive. So structured interviews where you ask each candidate the same thing um, and have a marking criteria for each answer means that you don't go down a path of, are they like me? Can we have a good chat? Do I like this person? Um, uh, and then you've got things like work sample tests, which are actual scenarios from a job uh, that you get the person to either write down their answer to or to role play uh, and, and, or have a simulation. Um, so if you can actually do the most predictive forms of assessment, which happen to be the least biased up front, you just get far better hiring outcomes in terms of quality of hire. And you also tend to see more diverse candidates. Um, but there is, you know, there's lots, lots, lots and lots of examples of um, fairly poor assessments still being used. Um, despite the evidence against them.
And when when we think about those sort of poor assessment processes that we talk about, what's the impact of those on organizations and on the people coming into the organizations? Does it show up in terms of performance? Does it show up in terms of retention? What, how does it show up and, and materialize? Um, it, so it shows up, I think, it, essentially, if, you're, if you've got a filter which is incorrectly um, assessing people, it means that you're potentially missing out on a couple of things. You're missing out on people who are different to who, who, who are disadvantaged by that assessment, um, which impacts the diversity of your organization. Um, and secondly, it, you're possibly just missing out on the best person for the job because they don't look the part. Um, so you're missing out on the best talent. Um, and those, uh, I guess, it's, it's really, the, the interesting thing is that the, um, once we hire someone, we usually convince ourselves that we did a good job of it, unless things go really bad. So um, these problems manifest themselves in cultures that are built up by homogenous uh, workforces, where something toxic yeah. is amplified continuously. So it's usually not like a um, UC high churn or, or something like that. It's usually down the track longer term, um, there's some kind of implosion um, due, due to those impacts on a company. Yeah, I think um, I think you're describing a place where I've been in the past, <laughs> where we've seen long-term implosions yeah. uh, coming out. Um, okay, so with, with the focus that we've, we've touched on here, um, and, and your organization's focus, it's very much on the recruitment piece. Do you look any an, uh, at all beyond recruitment? Do you look at things like onboarding or anything like that, or do you just focus on the recruitment side of things? So we, at the moment, only focus on the recruitment side of things. You can use our platform for like internal promotions. So you mentioned mm-hmm. you had, did an episode on gender pay gap, um, you know, moving, yeah. uh, trying to move uh, women into more senior roles. This is a great tool to use for that. Um, I would say we don't currently do anything on onboarding or even further on the other side of the funnel in terms of um, sort of attraction and going out and sourcing people. But what I will mm-hmm. say that if you, if you, are, uh, att- if you are looking to um, Im- improve diversity and inclusion within your organization, it's not, there is no silver bullet. We're certainly not a silver bullet. We're one piece of the puzzle. And I think, um, I think you need to have great onboarding this is the I piece of the DNI um, to make sure if you're if you get different people into your organization, they actually want to stay and aren't just kind of confronted by you know a, a workforce that isn't inclusive. Um, so not not now, but we see that we need to we need we're a piece of the piece of the puzzle um, at yeah. this time. I read a I read a great piece of research. Well, it wasn't great. I mean, it was depressing, but I read a really interesting piece of research about exactly what you talk about, where organisations have maybe improved their recruitment yeah. really well, and they're attracting much more diverse candidates, and they're getting through the process appropriately, and then they're they're, they're uh, coming confronted with an organisation that is only pro inclusion and diversity up to that point. Yeah. yeah. And they haven't done the hard work. And then what happens is they're, they're losing them quicker and mm. then their reputation drops with those communities. I, I, yeah. um, so what what you say yeah. about there being no silver bullet and being, I mean, it's, we spoke to someone a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And she, she said, what did she say? She, she said, said I, I have over. to crawl all over the process from beginning to end to find the places where we can make improvements. And I thought, slightly creepy. But brilliant, <laughs> brilliant metaphor of the sort of forensic detail someone needs to put every stage of the process yeah, through. Absolutely. And I think to go back to your first point, I think the worst outcome of that is, or one of, well, there's many, there's many bad outcomes, but, but one of them is uh, that the, the organization that's tried something different with their recruitment has gotten someone quite different in their door and it hasn't worked out for yeah. whatever reason, usually because they, they haven't thought about the inclusivity side of the equation um and they say well we tried someone different it didn't work out let's just go back to hiring from the same talent pool using the same proxies as we did before um that's which is it's just crazy because if you you would never develop a product or service like that if that was your main business you wouldn't go oh we're going to try something new well it hasn't quite worked it worked into a point, but not more. So we're just going to throw it all out. Exactly. Yeah. You would go back and you would iterate and you would iterate until yeah. you got there. Absolutely. And I think this goes back to um, talent acquisition teams being time poor, um, being under pressure. Yeah. Um, they're asked, they're the battle, they're, they're the kind of the area where 
um, a bit, one of the biggest impacts can be made on the diversity of your workforces. And they're asked to do it, but they're perhaps not given enough, you know, uh, uh, time and resources to actually do it because it's not going to, it usually doesn't work first time. It's a, it's a learning process that you need to iterate on yeah. exactly mm-hmm. as you say. And they never have, they will not never, they rarely have the influence across other parts of HR and other line managers, et cetera, Absolutely. Uh, to be able to sort of influence change so that they can, I must be, I must do you know what? I think you might be the first person that's made me massively sympathetic for a rigorous <laughs> example. They have a, they have a it's, tough it's, job. It's, it's tough, right? It is. It's really yeah, tough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then only to sort of be really ambitious about it and then maybe watch it fail the first couple of times. Totally. Yeah. And it goes back to that, um, you know, the, the combination of a moral imperative as well as the business case, because a lot of these conversations that they need to have to win that argument internally can't survive just on the basis of a moral imperative. They need to bring in a business case, I believe, to get others in the organization bought into, you know, the iterative um, design and test and fail and build process that they need to get to a good outcome. Absolutely. I think, um, yeah, it also goes back to what they're measured on. So most KPIs for talent acquisition teams are things like time to hire, volume of candidates. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't, only the most advanced talent teams are actually hired on, uh, sorry, measured on a quality of hire. Um, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm gobsmacked that there is rarely a feedback loop of the people that were hired um, and how they're going in their job um, to the method in which they were hired and how well they did through the assessment process so you continuously improve. That just really doesn't exist at the moment. I, I do think it is changing though. Certainly my experience, you know, I've hired a fair number of people in a large organization and that feedback loop's really not been mm-hmm. there. Um, so we've really struggled with that. And, and you know, and, and our recruitment team were, um, were using, um, y- you know, structured interview processes and things like that. And we had um, metrics yeah. in around diversity to ensure X percentage of candidates needed to be, um, say, uh, female or, or BAME or whatever. What, what, just as a total side conversation, one of the things that we found is that we had a pool of recruiters that our, our hiring team would go to. Um, and each of those recruiters needed to provide us with 30% uh, female applicants yep. in, in that stage of a provision. But what we found was that all of them were providing us with the same 30%, right? So the other 70% varied, <laughs> Sorry. but we had like 10 people um, each sending us 10 CVs. We'd have three women and 70 men or whatever. Which, to which is just a, a beautiful example of how someone has to have that very top level, but also... Yep. Uh, critical thought yeah. of how is this coming together because yeah. I look I get the logic of how those yeah. how oh, those targets got set but someone needs to take a step back yeah. and do the basic maths and go hang, it's on, not hang on there's overlap here yeah um oh dear so that, that's a good conversation about some of the current things that are going on and some of the challenges what's your view on what we can do to make that sort of um post-attraction pre-onboarding that core recruitment process uh more effective what can we do to get better at that yeah, I think um, there's a few things. Um, first of all, I would I would start switching out the KPIs for for the team and what they're measured on um, and what actually drives their behavior. So quality of hire um, and looking at maybe churn um, in the first year rather than um, inputs like time to hire or um, or volume mm-hmm. of candidates. I think that's that's a, that's a first big change in terms of a whole team. Um, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, teams have to start or recruiters have to start challenging themselves on the proxies they are using for working out whether people have skills. So um, if someone's gone to a great university, it might be an indicator that they are intelligent. Um, But just because they haven't been, just because they maybe haven't gone to the top university doesn't mean they're not intelligent. Um, Yet people would use that filter of university all the time. And to really, you're kind of doing yourself a disservice um, and you've really got to, what, what I'd say is the, the challenge is to break down that proxy into what you're actually trying to measure. Be very explicit about we're, we're trying to look for these skills and then actually test the candidates on whether or not they, they can do those things um, is, is kind of the big shift. So no more proxies um, for what you should be hiring, what you're looking for. Actually look for the things you're looking for. Um, with and I think with tech that's become possible and um, isn't as onerous and time-consuming as many people might think it might think it is. Um, 
I would also, there's a whole bunch of practical things you can do to a CV, like anonymization, um, which means you're able to guardrail against biases creeping in. And as you remove bias, you remove noise from your decision-making process um, and you ultimately make better decisions. I was speaking to um, a friend in Edinburgh who's actually uh, relocating back to Germany and is applying for jobs there. And it, it appears that in Germany, you're still expected to put photos on CVs for all kinds of jobs, which just took me as a complete surprise. And I guess that feels like that would bring with it so many yep. potential flags for bias. So um, one of those um, correspondence studies that I spoke about was in 2016. And they had Sandra mm-hmm. Bauer with a picture of, um, I guess, I guess a German-looking person. Um, and then her mm-hmm. name was changed to Miriam Ozturk. Um, and they had the exact same picture, but oh, yeah. they kind of, uh, she was wearing a headscarf and yeah. the callback rate for interviews for her, um, dropped massively. I think it was from 19% for Sandra Bauer down to 4%, um, wow. with the headscarf. So, uh, completely, um, shocking, shocking results. But uh, I was amazed as well that people still put photos, um, yeah. on their CVs. I, I feel like, I don't know, maybe it's just me. I feel like photos bypassed the UK. Like we were always so traditional about not doing it. And then by the time everyone else had stopped doing it, we had only just caught up. So we never really did it. Because certainly we used to get quite a lot of, uh, one of the small uh, the small charities I worked at, we had a lot of international applications. And I don't think I ever had a UK application with a photo in 10 years. Mm. And yet every single pretty, uh, I, yeah, I would say every single international, certainly yeah. every single European uh, application would include a photo for a good seven or eight years. Um, I used to find it fascinating. Yeah, I was like, why, why do I, it sounds awful, isn't it? I would be like, why, why, I, don't want to, I don't care what you look like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not fast. I mean, Not in it. You, but now yeah. we've got LinkedIn, right? So you can just, yeah, yeah. you can just, you know, LinkedIn, Google people see their photo, even if you're not meaning to. And see their yeah, network. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, and see who knows media, them, and it's and and Lord only knows what you see into a simple LinkedIn relationship between someone you respect and that person. A little bit of social proof, right? Right. Absolutely. Oh God, that's yeah. frightening. I hadn't even thought about that. And well, <laughs> there's, there's also a crop of tools coming up which are which link into other social media networks, um, which kind of pull and aggregate, you know, your Facebook or your Twitter and things like that. Um, with the, I guess, I think the misleading premise that more information is good for helping you to make yeah. your decision oh. um it's yeah. fascinating isn't it when did we become so obsessed with thinking that like if you just get all the information that's going to be the best possible way yeah. like yeah. It's, it's great i guess and i guess there's a with not to do star, star wars but with great star power wars. comes great responsibility <laughs> right with tech and it, well it does and it's that thing of we don't just because we can doesn't mean we should yeah yeah <laughs> absolutely oh dear <laughs> It's sort of a I'm not sure state. how I ended up at Stella's. No, I know, I know. And the end state is sort of, you know, um, social social value and the sort of Chinese model for um, social value through societal action and stuff like that. I mean, where, where does it end? Um, which is a little bit of a sad conversation <laughs> that we might do another time. But... We might have to come back to that for a new podcast. <laughs> yeah, we don't need that right now. Um, so we talked a little bit about anonymizing. Um, we talked a little bit about um, the need to... to you know, really define what's needed in a role. I had a question on that, which is, do you find that hiring managers know the skills really that are needed for their roles predominantly? You talked about a little bit in the tech space, but more broadly, what's your sense of a hiring manager's knowledge of, I guess, the skill requirements specifically of a role and maybe the outputs they're looking for within their role? Yeah, so I'd say that they, they know, um, but historically the way they've recruited is to get a JD that they used before um, and use that mm. and then maybe add a few requirements to it. I think, <laughs> yeah, I think the piece that is missing is actually getting them to sit down and write out maybe six to eight skills. And the skills are catch-all for, um, for, for something you need that person to do in that role. Um, so actually getting them to write it out is usually a, a really good experience for the hiring managers. And once you know what you're looking for, it sounds really simple. Once you know what you're looking for, you can actually test for it um, and get it much easier. Uh, than if you're you're not exactly clear on what you what you're looking for, mm-hmm. and and so that that takes a bit of time up front. Do you do you find that people are, are not doing it partly because of the time it takes, or the thought process, or is it just an awareness, or what yeah, it's preventing people from doing it. Yeah, I think it it does take time. Um, 
There's a couple of barriers. So the time thing, but also you've got to have a good relationship with your hiring managers. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I, I would say that it actually doesn't take that much time once you learn the methodology to developing, to getting the skills and then developing the way to assess it. But what we do, a good way to do it is develop a library of questions which are linked to skills. So if you need mm-hmm. to, um, if you need to uh, link in, if you need to get someone who's got, uh, if you're trying to test for resilience, for example, um, you can go to question libraries and work out which skills have been used previously and worked well for resilience and just pull that into, into your job. Okay. So there is a bit of upfront work, but it gets easier over time. Um, and I would say the outcomes are, you know, more than enough to um, repay that initial work upfront. I, the, what you're saying just makes so much sense. Mm-hmm. I like I, the number of I've, I've, my career has been dominated by very small organisations, and the number of hires that have been made on job descriptions that are either so woefully out of date, yep. and someone's like, "Oh, it's um, it's in the shared drive, and it's it'll be from three years ago when we last recruited that role," um, and and there's no conversation with the person who's either the outgoing person or the hiring manager. Yep. Um, about what has changed in yeah. the role or the sector or indeed anything yeah. that the organization does or doesn't do. I, I, lo- I love your point about looking at the job spec and adding a few more things because you want to personalize it or whatever. Totally. I, mean, I think I've seen that so or, many or I quite like, I've, I've had a number, two CEOs I've worked with a long time ago, very long time ago, who like to just chuck on things that were nice to have. Oh, well, if we ask for it, you never know what you get. And I'd be like, I just remember, I didn't understand any of this stuff at that point, but I do remember thinking, well, if there's 15 things on there, but only five of them are really important. Absolutely. And we recruit for the other seven. Yeah. We're stuffed. Yeah. And I yeah. just remember thinking that's that's crazy. Even really early in my career, I was like, that does, that does not seem like a good idea. Yeah, and there's there's research around um, how men and women respond to long list of requirements as well. So I think it's um, men will have a punt at the role if they've got like 60% of those requirements, whereas women mm. prefer to have 100%, um, not because they're less confident in any way. It's more that they see requirements as requirements, um, as rules, uh, whereas yeah, men are like, yeah. oh, these are, I'll just bend my way in here. Um, well, yeah. and I think, I think it's really interesting. I don't, I, I wouldn't even sense from the conversations I've had, it's about that. It's about them saying, well, it's up to them. If I tell them what I have got and what I haven't got and they choose to take me, that's up to them as an organization. Whereas I think when I've spoken to people who don't put themselves forward and people I coach, particularly women, um, it's about saying, well, I don't want to put myself forward and waste anyone's time if it's not, yeah, I don't fulfill absolutely. all the needs. And and what's really interesting is we, we talk elsewhere in this series with someone uh, around neurodiversity and she was saying that the exact same split is true um, in that quite often uh, uh, people with autism are far more likely to act in that secondary way Absolutely. of not putting themselves forward because they will see it as a physical tick list. It's a rule. Yep. Uh, yeah, right? it's, it's a, a rule, rule. It's and there's 10 rules and they only tick nine of them. So move on to the next job. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Which is, you know, explains quite a lot of, uh, if you're already playing in a pool that's, you know, even at the application stage, so uneven in the sense that you might have some very, very uh, clear matching opportunities across all the ca- across all the requirements from one gender, but you've got a huge number of people who maybe meet some of them. Yeah. And you combine that with a badly written job description that's got some nice to haves on it. Suddenly you're in a world where you've got some lovely people who are brilliant, but for the completely the wrong yeah. job. Yeah. Your probability of getting the right person must like diminish exponentially. Yeah, I wonder, sometimes I do wonder about probabilities and whether people could all just do with a bit more understanding about yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I think um, you're, you're just shooting yourself in the foot and missing out on the best talent. Um, and mm-hmm. I think if you truly change your process to focus on getting the best possible talent or quality of hire, um, then what, what we've seen is diversity comes naturally because um, there's no trade-off between those. Yeah. Okay. So obviously uh, you, got, you, and, you at Applied um, are really passionate about getting this better. Yep. What I guess the, the really helpful understanding would be we've, we've referred to it a little bit. But what role do you see tech playing um, in improving this? And specifically, how do you use tech as an organization to try and improve organizations' experiences? Yeah, um, I see tech as a great enabler. Um, It's a tool, really. Um, And it means that maybe in the past you didn't have the time or it wasn't physically impossible to, you know, to redact everyone's name from a CV. 
um, and do your job at the same time. But I see now it'll, it enables people to use more predictive assessment methods more easily. It enables people to remove bits of information that can lead to bias. And probably most importantly, it enables people to collect data on the effectiveness of their process, both in terms of how predictive their assessments are in, in, in reality, um, but also whether or not you, by tracking diversity throughout the funnel, um, whether or not you are in fact running a level playing field for everyone. Um, so I think it, it, it's a, it is a tool, not the answer. Um, and mm-hmm. I think the, the talent team needs to be in the right direction and be aiming for the right things for it to be effective. Sure. Mm-hmm. And then, then for you as an organization, I mean, clearly tech plays a role in, in what yeah. you guys do. What, what is it that you guys do for, for your customer base? How, how do you provide a, a service for them and help them with yeah. this with set of problems? Um, so we offer, we offer a recruitment platform. Um, where essentially our customers put their roles up on the platform. People will apply to those roles online, and then our customers will review and assess people in a de-biased way right through to hire. Um, So what that involves is a whole series of research-backed interventions, um, a lot of behavioral science in there, trying to improve and remove bias from each of the stages. So, um, for example, on uh, attraction, we... We have a tool that looks at the exact things we're talking about in terms of job descriptions. Um, it'll mm-hmm. give you warnings if you've got an endless list of requirements, for example. That's what that's one of our first tools. Um, but the mm-hmm. core of the platform is really just is, I guess, three things. The first one is we we nudge people towards the most predictive assessments. So you we don't use CVs. Right. Instead, we use mm-hmm. these work sample tests um, in three to five of these questions at the start of a process. The next thing we do is we, um, before you review the answers to those questions from candidates, we do a whole bunch of behavioral science methodologies to remove bias. Um, so one of those is okay. anonymization. Um, yeah. And then finally, at the end, we actually measure whether your questions have been effective and we do the kind of funnel metrics all the way through. Um, so if you think about most recruitment platforms, applicant tracking systems, I would say the majority focus on speed and productivity efficiency of the process which is important. Um, we yep. think we're different because we're focusing on quality of hire and diversity um, above all else. And when you do those things, the speed comes naturally. Yeah. Does that... And when you... Yeah, no, that yeah. does make sense. Um, and, and when you think about the, the types of organizations that benefit from essentially your platform yeah. uh, and, and the service you provide... Pardon me. So, sorry, sorry I'll pick that up. No, I'll, I'll jump back in. Sorry, <laughs> I just choked. <laughs> um, um, I was getting a bit excited. Um, my, my question was going to be, what types of customers benefit the most from this? Do, do you see what you're doing being value-adding for small organizations or is it really for large organizations? Or, or what, what are your thoughts? I mean, it's a really great question. Um, we believe it's a universal solution um, because the problem is everywhere, um, as we know. Uh, so we think... Everyone can use it. It tends to work better for knowledge-heavy roles. Um, so it's less useful for maybe like seasonal employment, um, like people in retail who you need to employ for you know, a couple of months over Christmas quickly. Um, it seems to be better suited for knowledge-heavy roles, maybe like consultants or um, tech, things like that. Um, in terms of size, we don't think it's limited, um, but it's more down to the barriers which face us if we want to engage with a larger customer versus a smaller one. Uh, a larger customer will have be set in their ways, have their process, and have quite a lot of inertia behind that. So it's difficult to displace yeah. and to convince people to change the way that they're working. Not impossible, but difficult, takes a long time. Um, we have done it in mm-hmm. some cases. With a smaller company who's kind of at the start of their growth journey, you you can really uh, get in there quicker and explain the benefits um, a lot quicker and kind of show them the value of the product um, quite quickly, um, which means it's, it's easy, more easily adopted um, for the kind of smaller um, kind of progressive uh, companies who are thinking hard about how they, um, how they recruit and treat people. Mm-hmm. And, and for them to, to, you know, sort of absorb the system into their ways of working, I mean, how much of an ask is it for them? It's a, I mean, it's a, it's a fairly big ask. Um, because we essentially ask them to let go of the CV. 
yeah. which is the way we all know how to apply for a job. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a massive behavioral change, uh, which is always going to be tough. Um, but I think if you couple the practical business outcomes of um, you know getting three times as many great candidates um, with the uh, with I guess the building a better workplace, the kind of uh, social mission angle of it, um, people are usually pretty yeah. happy to make the change and try it. Um, it just takes takes a bit longer for them to let go of their their existing ways. Um, as the yeah. organization gets bigger, of course, those systems and processes and tech are just more embedded and take longer to, to yeah. kind of pry out or replace. Yeah. Cool. Well, I think we're kind of getting to the end of this. I think it's been really interesting. I think the stuff you guys are doing are, is great. Um, I think it's great to hear you talking about the social imperative as well as the business mm-hmm. case and really trying to drive stuff forward, I guess. I'm just mad. <laughs> mad? What are I'm, you mad just about? Ba- I'm just back where I was two months ago where I'm really mad about the world again. Wow. But I'm glad someone's doing something about yeah, it. Yeah, that makes me happy. Yeah. Baked in and just. I think, I think actually it's a time for hope and optimism because I think tech science data has finally caught up with the demands of recruitment. Um, and you're seeing a change. Um, so all of the best new tech companies think this way about, the, about how they hire people. So that's, for me, that's Great. uplifting. Um, and we'll yeah. get there. Yeah. Well, yeah. great. Um, just before we go, is there any way that listeners can learn more about you and what you do and your organization? Yeah, I mean, I think the best place to go is um, our website. You know, we've got videos and resources on what we do. Um, otherwise, please connect with me on LinkedIn, um, on Twitter. Um, get in touch. We're happy just to have a bit of conversation if you want to hear more. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and what is your website? Could you let listeners know? Yeah, it's www.beapplied.com. Cool. So that's beapplied.com. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, hopefully um, some people get in touch. It's interesting. It, it feels hugely worthwhile. Um, and like we're moving in the right direction. Yeah, thanks, Andy, for sharing uh, your time and your experience and your knowledge. I think um, uh, what you've done today has really helped people think differently about maybe stuck in their ways might be strong, but maybe people who are just making assumptions about the way they do things. Yeah, yeah even if people can start to challenge for the status quo and, and see that there might be new ways to do things in this space. That'd be yeah. awesome. Well, that's great. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, thank you very much for spending your time with uh, us and have a great day. Thank you. Bye. Okay, so here we are back in the conversation. I thought that was a great conversation. I, I liked um, Andy's measured tone and insights and, and what they're trying to do. I thought it was really interesting. I misheard you for a minute and I just thought you said I liked Andy's tone, <laughs> as in you liked his voice, which, which by the way, he has got a lovely yes, speaking yes, voice, yes, but yes. Um, I, missed, I missed the measured bit. No, it was the measured bit. I mean, it's a, a great way to speak about the subject. I think it really brought some complicated things to life in, in an accessible way, which was really useful. Yeah, I mean, we, we're getting towards the end of the series now and I have to say on reflection that there have been a number of guests that I've been surprised by how impressed I have been by their knowledge of the sector, the theme, but also their own reflections yeah. and ability to reflect on what they do and what organizations are doing. So, yeah, That's yeah, good. really good. Love it. Any big takeaways stand out for you? For me, well, um, I guess I always try and think about things from a small organization point of view, like really small. And I guess the one thing I would take away is that I think we all know that our job descriptions aren't always the best the most accurate, the most uh, stripped down to what actually is truly going to be the judge of the job and the skills required rather than nice to have some things like that. And I think, I know we're all busy, but I think a half an hour conversation with the person who's either outgoing of the role or going to be managing the role to really refine that job description is something we can all do. Yeah, that's powerful, right? Right. It's a simple thing that everyone can do. Think about it. I always say to people uh, people I'm career coaching or mentoring, if you can demonstrate you really understand the purpose of the role and what it takes to do it, and you can demonstrate that you both want it and have the experience to do it, then you're, you've got to be in with the shot. It's a good chance, yeah. You can't do that if the job description is poor. No, you can't get a decent list of those people if you're hiring if you haven't explained the job properly. Totally. It makes total sense, right? So simple. Yeah. So that's mine. What about you? Well, I'm going to cheat. I've got three things I'm going to do. Maybe it's because most of them got cold, yeah. Well, I'm just going to rattle through them quickly. One, um, 
moral imperative around diversity and inclusion, I think we don't always uh, accept that as, as being necessary. I think the moral imperative is a good reason to do this. Business case is good, but you know, morally this stuff is important as well. Equity is important. Um, next thing that really stuck in my mind was the importance of data, and increasingly we're moving towards a data-driven way of working in all areas of life, and, and it's just good to see that reaffirmed and, and to, to see the empirical nature of outcomes based on data that, that this type of approach can apply. I think that's interesting. But the bit that kind of stuck with me was that, um, I, as I think you said, you know, a lot of people in the recruitment space have a, have a hard time at the minute. They're under so much procedural pressure, so much time pressure, that it's actually kind of hard, um, in my opinion, based on the people I've spoken to, to for some of these people to do the, the sort of quality of uh, job that they want and to produce the output and to do these things. Um, and it's just important to remember, I think, that a lot of people really want to do a great job in this space and are trying to, but sometimes come up against constraints. Um, so I think this, this is a good sort of step forward in that area to give people more education and insight and opportunity to do that. Yeah, I think I think coming back to the moral imperative, uh, we did an episode like in series one where I went on a bit of a run about we shouldn't do this because it's necessary or oh, forced. Yeah. We should do it because we can. Yeah. In And it was about something completely different, but I, I maintain that, that organizations are brave about the moral imperative will progress in the long run and I, think, survivors, I think. and I think you're right about the compassion for recruitment and I yeah. my challenge to senior leaders would be start pushing in a positive way your HR to change and to think about what's new and to learn and invest in their own personal yeah. development and professional development yeah, give them space to to be uh, producing better outcomes that are empirically uh, verifiable uh, yeah and stop treating recruitment as a process through which you have to go through a series of steps and tick box exercise yeah. such that you will get a, a quick result at the end yeah like you know yeah these are the people that are going to work in your organization don't you want to take the time and energy to do it properly yeah, and get, get the, the right best ones. possible mix yeah all right well with that i think i'm going to take my high horse and fold it up and put it away and then i can get back on it another day well i'm going to keep my high horse out okay uh but i will Yeehaw. i will just move it to the side for a moment right okay all right, well, let's let's call it a day there. We're going to uh, check out, and that's going to be us for another week. We'll be back with another episode next week. Uh, until then, have a great time. Bye, everyone. Hi. Thanks for listening to this episode of the World of Work podcast. To learn more about what we do, please check out our website, www.worldofwork.io, where you can read some great articles, learn more about the seminars and courses that we deliver, or even support us if you wish through our Patreon page. That's www.worldofwork.io. Thank you.